You're listening to Mockingbird. This recording was made at the 8th Annual Mockingbird Conference, held at Calvary St. George's Church in New York City. Hi, good morning. I'm Scott, and I'm a gamer. On Alto's adventure, I'm on level 35. I know, I should have won it by now. It's been a very busy spring, I'm sorry. I'm here to introduce Jamin Warren, uh, who's a graduate of Harvard. He was the entertainment and culture reporter at the Wall Street Journal before he left to found his own video game arts and culture magazine and website called Killscreen. Um, I'm, I met Jamin, by the way, three years ago tonight in the company of Simeon Zoll downstairs. Uh, I was talking to him. I said, well, what do you do? He said, oh, I, I run a magazine. I said, what's the magazine about? Uh, he said, it's, it's actually about video games. And I said, oh, I, I love video games. And in fact, I just subscribed to this video game magazine that you probably know. It's probably your competition. It's called Killscreen. He's like, actually, I run that. It was amazing. And I've been sort of, sort of worshiping him from afar since. He's, all, he's the author of a hundred, hundreds of articles and reviews on Killstream. He's also the host of a PBS show called Game Slash Show. In an interview uh, recently with Fortune Magazine, Jamin can't help but comment on how video games are both ephemeral and, uh, excuse me, both ephemeral uh, about unembarrassed play and also about the very definition of who we are as human beings. This is a quote from the interview. Warren can't resist asking the creators of a wildly Byzantine yet popular game called Dwarf Fortress, quote, do you worry about the dwarves becoming self-aware? And when an Oscar-winning special effects wizard and game animator for the popular Assassin's Creed franchise openly wonders, openly wonders why eyes are so tough to animate realistically, Warren deadpans, oh, it's because they don't have souls, I think. Creator of the hugely successful 256 video game and arts conference here in New York, which has become the South by Southwest of an industry that is actually bigger than both the music and the film industries. You may not realize it, but video games are a huge deal. I'm very proud to be able to welcome Mockingbird to the real world. If I may be so bold, it's time to stop playing in the sandbox of Wes Anderson movies and Brian Wilson documentaries <laughs> and get serious about culture and get serious about the fact that we're all gamers. Welcome, Jamie. All right, that was the kindest introduction I've maybe ever received, <laughs> ever. Um, so as mentioned, I used to be a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Um, I covered arts and entertainment starting there around 2006, and um, they gave me a, a really, really wide kind of range. Um, it was me and this other reporter named John, and this gave me a lot of flexibility to cover a bunch of different fields. So I wrote about things like, uh, let's see here, it's not working. 
Ah, there we go. Okay, I wrote about things like the internet, for example. This is a story that I filed many, many years ago. It says, how Facebook plans to catch MySpace. I don't know if that happened yet. Uh, wouldn't say I could always tell the future, but... <laughs> um, I also traveled to North Carolina once to cover um, a group of, uh, a group of uh, jump ropers called the Bouncing Bulldogs as they faced off against the Japanese at uh, the Apollo Theater in Harlem. Yes, that actually happened. That's the story that I filed. Um, I covered web culture, and then a, and finally I got to games. Um, I played games my whole life. Uh, it was one of the two things I did, aside from reading. And when I got there, I guess around 2008, I found this whole new world of games kind of waiting for me. There were these big budget titles like Bioshock. They were asking these sort of larger existential questions. Um, in this case, it's a game about, uh, about choice and uh, Ayn Rand, believe it or not. Um, and I saw you know, these smaller games as well, a game like Braid, which is about loss and longing, but against the sort of uh, subtext of a classic game like Super Mario Brothers. Um, so I filed this, you know, I basically saw these things that were happening in the world of games, and I go to my editor and basically explain to him, you know, look, there's this magical thing that's happening, it's making a lot of money, you should really care about it, the Wall Street Journal should be all over it, filed this huge brief, and this was his response to me, I don't get this video game thing. Um, and I remember this because I wrote this very long three-page document. He was just very like, no, no, I don't really care what you're saying. Video games are not really something the paper should be covering. And they shuttled me off to another cultural backwater of television, right? So, uh, <laughs> so I covered TV and I ended up leaving. But that, that question of I don't get video games, it really stuck with me. And it was in Congress for me at the time because... Um, you know, Grand Theft Auto 4 had become the largest entertainment property on the planet. I mean, at this point, between Grand Theft Auto and uh, Call of Duty, they generate, each of them alone is like a billion dollars a month, which is three times as much as, uh, three times as much as the single day movie gross, which was the Deathly Hollows at 91 million, although maybe Fast and Furious, or Furious 7 rather, which is an amazing movie you should go see, um, has actually taken it over. The Backstreet Boys, the best they ever did was 20 million dollars, but games are constantly generating lots and lots of money, and yet culturally we don't necessarily think of them as being in the same place as these other kinds of uh, spheres of culture like music, um, dance, art, etc. So I kind of wanted to talk about um, why this might be, because it's a question that's sort of dogged me. I have to explain what it is that I do to other people at parties and whatnot. Um, so I kind of have some ideas about why it is that games and more specifically play, what it is about them that really scares us. Um, so I think that we have, uh, this is from The Shining, um, I think, if you can't read it, it says all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Um, I think that we have a deep, deep insecurity about play, and this stems all the way back, I think, to particularly as Americans, back to Puritan times. Um, you might be familiar with the concept of the Protestant work ethic. It's a theological, sociological, economic, and historical concept which encourages hard work and diligence with the promise of religious salvation and ultimately lots and lots of money and great hats as well. Um, so this desire for self-improvement in all aspects of our lives, yeah, the Puritan work ethic, getting stuff done since 1564. Um, so there's this idea, right, that we can achieve the best versions of ourselves and we can overcome um, hardship through positivity and self-determination. And this is very deeply ingrained in the way that Americans think about um, what it is that we do. And even though, obviously, 
You know, most people wouldn't openly claim to be a Puritan anymore. In fact, it's a pejorative, right? Nobody wants to admit to being a Puritan. We carry a lot of those cultural values. Just recently, it was announced that Americans work 10 more hours a week than our European colleagues. Um, so part of this idea of the American dream is that you work hard. And uh, if you work hard, ultimately, you'll get the two-car garage and um, fancy house and all that stuff. Um, and so anything that sort of stands in the way of you sort of achieving that dream should be considered, you know, suspect. It should be considered um, unimportant. Um, so this was, this was a tweet from, uh, he's an editor at Quartz at The Atlantic, and he, I felt like, had a really astute quote. He was asking this kind of open question, which is, he says that play is a vitally important age. I can't believe it's not one of the cardinal virtues like thrift and honesty, right? And thrift and honesty are things that are associated with the Protestant work ethic. Um, and, you know, we hate this idea that leisure and relaxation could be just as important as thrift and honesty. And the first response to him, the very first response was, you're paid to sit down all day and get butt cancer. Think about why play isn't encouraged. You'd never want to do your job, right? So it's this idea that, um, that if we played all day, then all of a sudden we wouldn't be able to get things done. America falls to the communists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <laughs> We're very divided about, um, about how games should fit, and I think that our hearts yearn for the freedom that games allow, but our identity as puritanical automatons um, that sociologist, uh, sociologist Max Weber identified in the Protestant work ethic um, doesn't allow us to really fully embrace games and play the way that we should. Work is what made America great, right? And play has no part in this whatsoever. So we're deeply, deeply conflicted, and we can't really find a way forward unless one of the things that we do is we try to make play useful. Um, one of the spaces where this happens is... Uh, <laughs> is in educational games. How many of you have played Oregon Trail at some point? Yeah. All right. Uh, I actually had the pleasure of interviewing uh, the guy who started, who created Oregon Trail. It's, uh, it's a really fascinating story. It, it turns out that Oregon Trail was designed by these three students who were, uh, one of whom was a Vietnam War, he was like a conscientious objector and he couldn't find a job after college and so he got into making video games. But regardless, um, educational games, I, I think a lot of times we look at educational games as a way to sort of make games useful, right? So if games are teaching you something, um, then all of a sudden we shouldn't really think of them seriously. Um, so we treat games as a means, not as an end. It's some conduit towards some other learning lies somewhere else, but games in and of themselves, not super important. Um, I think this is one of the things that drives parents crazy about a game like Minecraft. I think, uh, there are any, any uh, parents here have kids who play Minecraft? Yeah, it's pretty popular. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, for a lot of parents, they look at Minecraft and they're like, all right, there's no rules, there's no um, objectives, like kids are just playing all the time. And so what we try and do with games like Minecraft is we say things like, oh, but my child will become an architect someday, right? My He's going to learn things from Minecraft and become an architect, or, you know, there's now, like, history programs to use Minecraft in the classroom. And I don't think these things are bad in and of themselves, but would it be the worst thing in the world if all that came of playing Minecraft was a sense of fulfillment and enjoyment and whatnot? Um, another similar problem happens with this title. Um, for anyone who has young children, there's a very popular series called Toka Boca. There's a bunch of them. It's called Toka Boca Salon and uh, Toka Boca Houses and... Uh, Basically, what you do in Tokoboka is more or less whatever you want. This one is for uh, Tokoboka Kitchen, uh, and you can make recipes and then feed this little avatar character kind of whatever you want. But there's no real point for Tokoboka. It's just this idea that kids want to play and just kind of like do their own thing. 
Um, and actually, I, I spoke to the play designer for this game earlier this week, and she was saying one of the most common reviews that they get on the App Store is from parents, not from children. And they complain, they say, I don't get it, I don't get what you're supposed to do, this game clearly is, I don't feel like my kid's learning anything, and then, you know, they shuttle them off to Math Blaster or whatever else. Um, but this idea that the games have to be educational, have to do something, I think kind of misses the point. Um, this is a great quote from the choreographer, uh, Mercy Cunningham, uh, who worked with John Cage and David Tudor and artists like Robert Rauschenberg and uh, Bruce Nauman. He said that a good teacher stays out of the way. Um, so I think that's, you know, we, we sort of always are trying to instrumentalize play. But I think that the reason that we are, we are so strange in terms of our relationship to play goes a bit deeper, uh, deeper than that. Um, so over the course of my work, I've come across, I came across this guy, his name's Johan Heisinger. Um, he was a Dutch professor at the University of Leiden. Um, his chief interest was in the Middle Ages, clearly a very serious kind of guy, deep in the book. Reminds me a lot of Simeon, actually. <laughs> um, who was, he was, Simeon, uh, Dave's brother, was my college roommate. Um, but he, he, he got really interested in play as a founding element of human culture. And he made this argument that beneath all human systems, games undergird all human interaction. And he coined this concept, um, he called it Homo Ludens, and he's thinking about this transition from Homo erectus, um, sort of man the walker, Homo sapien, man the thinker, and then he's writing this at the turn of the 20th century, so Homo faber, man the worker, would have been a really popular concept, and he wanted to go back to the beginning and propose this idea called Homo Ludens, which means man the player. And he was against a very mechanical understanding of that time. In fact, the age in which he was living and writing is very similar to our own. It's one that's dominated by progress. Um, progress, that was a buzzword at the time. We have disruption, and they had progress. Um, and he was, he, he was really interested in this idea that there's something sublime at the heart of who we are as people. At the time, also, psychology would have been a very new concept. And, but he also was sort of resistant to this idea that, um, that humans were just the sum of their parts. Um, and in a lot of ways, he was very antithetical to kind of this puritanical idea that if you work hard, you should get things that you deserve. Um, he looked at dogs, for example. Dogs are the only animal that you can actually communicate with via play. Um, dogs have their own play language. That's how they know that you know, they're playing and not fighting. So if you notice a dog kind of like will do that thing where they sort of put their shoulders down and they put their butt in the air, that's how they communicate to you that they're ready to play and they're not trying to kill you, which is good, which is a good thing. Um, one of the things that he said was that animals need not man to learn their playing and yet it's the one truth that we share in common. Um, also, as a linguist, he was a real stickler. Um, so he, he was really insistent that there is a play element of culture and not the play element in culture. So when you're thinking about the hierarchy of how things should go, play sits at the very top and everything else kind of descends from it. Um, he wrote that we have to conclude, therefore, that civilization is in its earliest phases played. It does not come from play like a baby detaching itself from the womb. It arises in and as play and never leaves it. Um, so we'll find vestiges of games and play in places even if we're not expecting uh, to find it, even if it's unintentional. Um, so he set out to outline all of these elements of culture, and like any good academic, he just sort of picked the things that he sort of already knew. Um, so he picked fields that he had already studied, like linguistics, um, law, for example. Um, but the one that really caught his eye was religion, and he was really interested in the playful elements that you could find in religion. It's interesting, there's a nice, uh, there's a bit of, uh, I guess, intersectionality between his 
life and that of the Puritans. Uh, the Puritans in the 17th century settled in Leiden. Uh, they you know, left England, uh, moved to the much looser, more libertine Netherlands, and they settled in a place called Leiden, which is actually the place where housing had taught. Um, so he would have been very familiar kind of with the puritanical ideals that were there. And of course, the Puritans ended up leaving. They were concerned about their children, children becoming Dutch. I'm not quite sure what that means, but regardless, they ended up here, which is a good thing. Um, so housing is a big concept. Um, the big thing that I think is really relevant to us is he introduced this idea at Homo Ludens. It's called the magic circle. Um, and he's not using this as like a generic term or concept, but his text actually refers to an actual playground or a physical space for playing. So inside the magic circle, real world events have special meanings. Um, so for example, in the real world, if you're just kicking a ball into a net, you're a crazy person, right? If you just like saw some person just like kicking a ball around, you're like, what are you doing? But you can actually get paid millions and millions of dollars if you learn how to kick a ball into a net very well while other people are standing in the way. And the only reason that we accept that, housing, I would argue, is because of the magic circle, that there is this space that you can step into and the rules of the real world sort of resi reside into the background and this new set of rules kind of emerges. Um, so the magic circle is this place of dream and fantasy. Um, it's an escape from everyday problems and chores. And the most important thing, and this is incredibly important, is that inside this place that he called the magic circle, some, somehow you're transformed. Um, and every, every time a person leaves the magic circle, they bring with them meaning and experience, which means that it's, there is a porous wall between the things that happen in games and play and the experiences that we have in the real world. Wrestling is, you know, it's funny, wrestling is actually one of the great examples of uh, the magic circle. They have this concept, it's called kayfabe or breaking kayfabe which is that basically wrestlers know that it's fake, right? But they never want to communicate that to the audience. And the idea is that inside the ring, there's this whole other reality that takes place. And that's why people find it incredibly enjoyable. Um, so Housinger wrote that all play moves and has existence within a playground marked off beforehand, um, either materially or ideally, deliberately or as a matter of course. Um, just as there is no formal difference between play and ritual, he actually calls um, the areas in which we play, he calls them consecrated spots um, that cannot be formally distinguished from a playground. So he outlines all these different places where this happens. So he talks about the card table, um, the stage, the screen, the tennis court, the court of justice, all of these areas have play. And you know, it's interesting, um, it's interesting is that they're temporary worlds within the ordinary world, right? They sort of only take on these particular qualities when they're occupied by other people. So a soccer pitch doesn't really mean a lot unless there are people playing soccer on it. Other, um, um, otherwise, it's just, sort of, it's just sort of a field. Um, and he wrote that play cannot be denied. You cannot deny, uh, you cannot deny it if you... Uh, Play cannot be denied. You can deny it if you like nearly all. You can deny if you like nearly all abstractions: justice, beauty, truth, goodness, mind, God. You can deny seriousness, but not play. So he's identifying something very, very special and very, very elemental about what happens when we play games together. Um, so what I think, you know, when I go back to the original, um, the, the original thoughts that my, my editor at the Wall Street Journal, when he says, oh, I don't, you know, I don't really get video games. And I get this a lot sometimes, like I'll break out a board game or something and people will say, like, ah, I don't really like board games. I don't really like games. Games aren't for me. And there's lots of reasons why that might be. Um, it's like anything else. But I think one of the things that scares us about games and play is that transformative element, that you lose something of yourself when you play games. So that all the investments that we've made in the real world, all of a sudden they disappear and we're in this other place where age, creed, occupation, income level, nationality, even language 
does not matter. Does that sound familiar even a little bit? Um, there's a, this, this game is by a designer named Junova Chen. He created a game called Journey. It's modeled after the hero's journey. And he grew up in mainland China. China and he said one of the reasons why he makes games in which players um, communicate abs through abstraction, because you don't actually talk to other players, is because games are one of the few things that you can do with someone that doesn't require you to actually share the same language. You can sit down and play chess um, with another person. They don't have to, they don't have to have anything in common with you. The only thing they have in common with you is that they're playing a game with you right at that moment. Um, so I believe that like the more, one of the reasons why we don't like play is because the more that we've sort of made it, like Gordon Gecko, the less likely we are to play because the more you have to lose. Because all those accomplishments, those things that matter in the real world don't really matter as much when we play games. That's why we like the narrative of modern sports, right? So when we watch football, for example, we don't, it's not as exciting, for example, to have, I mean, if we think about it, the game like football, what's happening there is that guys who make millions and millions of dollars off the field, get on the field and do this thing that's kind of abstract and complicated and in the grand scheme of things isn't very productive. But what we like about the narrative of like contemporary football, for example, is this idea that all that stuff gets left behind and all that matters is what they're doing. Um, I wanted to make a brief note about addiction. I think one of the other concerns that we have about games and play is that we get addicted to them. There's a, as you heard earlier, there's a little bit of self-loathing a lot of times when people talk about being a gamer or someone who plays games or it's like, well, I'm really serious, but, you know, sometimes I let go a little bit or people talk about the hours lost to a game like World of Warcraft. Um, Jay McGonigal, she's a, she's a thinker and a big advocate for games. She talks a lot about, like, what addiction and what that means, about why people escape in the games. And she talks about escapism, which is generally that's what people sort of accuse games of. It's like you're escaping from the real world. There's two different types of escapism. There's self-suppression and self-expansion. Um, self-suppression means that you're trying to sort of uh, escape all the things in the real world and you're using games as a way to sort of cover them up. Self-expansion means that games can provide us a lens into some kind of new experience. Um, but in some ways, like, I sort of understand, like, when we're going through really hard times, why games can be really attractive to us. This is Brian Sutton Smith. Um, he was a play researcher. He just passed away actually a couple weeks ago and had a really nice obit in the New York Times. He was from New Zealand. And I think he was brutally honest in terms of understanding what role play plays in sort of our contemporary space, particularly as it relates to suffering. Um, and he wrote that, you know, why do we study play? We study play because life is crap. Life is crap and it's full of pain and suffering and the only thing that makes it worth living, the only thing that makes it possible to get up in the morning and go on living is play. And, you know, in some ways he's basically saying, like, if you really acknowledge the real world for what it is, play becomes incredibly attractive, right? And in some ways a necessary feature of contemporary existence because if you don't have some other place where you can go to, um, to sort of do something else outside of play, then, you know, you're not really acknowledging the world for what it is, the place of pain and suffering. Um, so here's my big point. I think that play at some level, it scares us all. Um, it's why we pay people millions of dollars to do it on our behalf, is because we don't want to do it ourselves. Um, and we, we get really terrified. I think of, you know, when we sit down and play games, we get really, really terrified. Um, Robert Fagan is a writer, and he's actually someone who studies play and animals. He wrote that the most irritating feature of play is not the perceptual incoherence as such, but rather that play taunts us with its inaccessibility. We feel that something is behind it all, but we do not know or we've forgotten how to see it.
So back to Housinga, the Dutch professor that I talked about earlier. Um, so the, you know, the postscript for his life, you know, he was taken very, very seriously. He was, you know, at the time, the most esteemed Dutch thinker of that time before he kind of got interested in play. And he got interested in play basically uh, in, right before World War II. And uh, he started to critique that so Nazis had occupied his home country. They started to have more of an influence over the university system. And he spoke out publicly um, and was sort of held up as a scapegoat. In 1941, he was arrested. Um, and even though he was eventually released, um, he died died in detention uh, in uh, a town called Distig in Girdeland um, on February 1st, 1945, just before, just a couple months before the end of World War II. Um, but one of the things, so, so I had a chance to go to, um, I had a chance to go to the Netherlands and interview his biographer who's collected all of his notes and letters. And one of the things that he told me was that, that Hasinga loved playing with his kids. His wife died very young. Um, he was 42, his wife was a little bit younger, and he was left with these five children. But one of the things that he loved to do was play with his kids. Again, this is like very, very serious, like Dutch academic. And he would make up these languages and curse words. And he identified something about his children that I think he didn't necessarily see in his professional life. And I think because um, Housing understood that there's something very unique about what it is that kids do when they play. Um, Jesus said, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think normally when we hear that quote, we think about innocence, right? Or we think about, um, I don't know, sort of these sort of elemental qualities of what kids do. But if you like actually watch kids, the only thing that they do, like if they had a, a calendar, the only thing that they do is play, right? That's it. They're like, my 9 a.m., I gotta get my blocks out, so... And then I got a 10 a.m. And then, you know, I have, a, I have lunch and then a nap afterwards. And, but all they do is just playing games over and over and over again. Um, so I think, like, what Jesus was trying to say is he was identifying something, I, I guess, you know, before his time, but is sort of timeless, is that there's this transition for kids. Uh, I'm sure parents, you've seen this as well, um, where kids go from unstructured play to structured play. So kids left to their own devices, they just make up games, and these games have porous walls, and they kind of do whatever it is that they want. And then over time, play sort of takes on this, I don't know, this civilizing sort of element. I think parents often really push kids in that direction. They want it that the play happens in the playroom with the play toys, right? Not with the china, right? That they sort of put these constraints on kids, right? Um, that free-willing nature of play becomes something institutionalized. Um, and I think a big reason that play, so when we watch kids and as parents, I don't have any kids, so I'm totally just speaking from what I hear. Um, I think part of the reason that when we watch kids play and it frustrates us at some level is because of its relationship to rules. Um, good games... Um, good games have some kind of rules, and our relationship to rules is really, really fraught. Um, in large part because I think games and play are a place where grace can live, and I think that kids really understand that. But we don't take them serious, right? Be seriously, because we think that play is not a serious thing, and seriousness, that's what, that's what adults do. Um, James Carth wrote that, to, and I think this is a misunderstanding of like what play actually is. Um, James Carr wrote in Finite and Infinite Games, he wrote, to be playful is not to be trivial or frivolous or to act as though nothing of consequence will happen. On the contrary, when we are playful with each other, we relate as free persons and the relationship is open to surprise. Everything that happens is of consequence. It is in fact seriousness that closes itself to consequence. For seriousness is a dread of the unpredictable outcome of open possibility. To be serious, to be, <laughs> it's a very emphatic, um, to be serious 
is to press for a specified conclusion. To be playful is to allow for possibility, whatever the cost to oneself. And so when you watch kids play, one of the things that they do is they adjust rules based on the situation at hand. So if they're playing a two-player game, for example, and a third person comes along, they just make it a three-player game, right? There's no, like, look, this is one-on-one. You got to find another game. It's, you know, it's also interesting to note that in the history of games, there are only two games that you play by yourself, solitaire and golf. Everything else, everything else requires another human being. So there's something inherently social. I think kids really understand that. So when Jesus is saying we should become more like children, I think that that's what he's saying is that we should adjust the rules of this system that we created um, in, on the side of accommodation rather than on the side of exclusion. Um, one of the sports that's done this incredibly well is actually basketball. And the art critic Dave Hickeys has written a lot um, about basketball. He wrote this great essay called The Heresy of the Zone Defense. And one of the things he talks about, he's an art critic. He's an art critic, and he's coming from like a, you know, he's trying to contrast the world of art, which to him has these really nonsensical rules and the world of games, specifically basketball. And one of the things he writes is that every, about, is about rule changes in basketball. He says that it's always, always come, ah, da, da, sorry. It has always seemed to me that the trick of civilization lies in recognizing the moment when a rule ceases to liberate and begins to govern. That's, I think that's the reality that kids understand, and we can get at some of that when we play games. Um, so I just, you know, in closing, I, I wanted to read, I, it's a little bit of a long quote, but I thought it was really important and captured, you know, why I got really interested in games in the first place. There's this sense sometimes when we're playing games that sort of the realities of the world sort of like drift into the background. And I think our tendency is to think that we're sort of escaping something, that we're not looking at play as like an act of community. And sort of my life's work, at least thus far, has been to really encourage people to play games with one another, not just because I think it's interesting or because it's fun or whatever. I mean, those things are very, very true. And I I think it's an art form, but I think that there's something deeper that happens when we play games, and I think it's tied to the very nature of grace. Um, Nimi Wariboko um, wrote this book called The Pentecostal Principle. Um, actually, Simeon, um, Simeon Zoll, my college roommate, um, sent me this quote, and I thought it was really fitting and kind of uh, helped bring these two kind of ideas for me, what I do in church and in community, and what I do at work with games into, um, into conversation with one another. Um, Wariboko writes, grace is a negation of work. But play is its style of negation. The greatest proof of divine graciousness is that grace is repeated again and again. For those under grace, for every act, every day uh, is available. This repetitive excess is the abounding vitality and vitality of life and pneumatic existence. Grace, by definition, is a genuine gift, not a secretly instrumentalized one. Freely it is given and freely it is received. It has no purpose, no self-addressed envelope from the giver to send something in return. It is a pure means of relations between the believer and God. It is play, not because it is trivial and worthless, but because it has no end, an unended action. Play is the essential character of spirituality governed by the grace principle rather than the work principle. It is the state of religion that is deprived of the spur of necessity, want, and purpose human-divine relationship reorganized in the spirit of play. And I think what's fascinating is that we can have that experience right here, right now. It's something that we can do. Um, I have kind of like a tortured relationship to, I think, like heaven and what happens to us after we die. But the one thing that I feel like feels the most clear to me is this idea that you will be in a space where there is no end. And I can think of no better way to while away eternity than to play games with one another. All right, thank you.